0: Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Lanyap Podcast. My name is Boomer.
1: Hi, I'm Allie.
0: And I am Brandon. And we're starting things off a little bit differently today, because I have something that I want to talk about. I have scores to settle, no pun intended, which will make sense in a minute. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, I mean, it will make sense, but I, I don't have a score to settle. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with with most things, but...
1: I wish it were a pun, okay? <laughs> but go ahead.
0: Well, it is about scores. So earlier this year, you know, a few episodes ago, we talked about our end of the year ranking, which we do every year. And I don't know if it was cut or not. I've noticed sometimes it does get cut because I I, I go on and on uh, from time to time. But I have often advocated for a ranked choice voting system when it comes to our top ten end of the year list. Uh, the way that it's tallied up right now is that uh, movies make it on the list based on how many lists they appear in. So there's my list, there's Brittany's, there's Brandon's, there's Ally's, and Anna's, and James. And so if, for instance, one of those movies ends up on every list, which is something that happened in 2020, even if it wasn't in anybody's actual top 10 If it was like number 11 for all six of us, for instance, it'll end up really high at the top of the list, even though none of us really consider it to be within the top 10 within our own individual lists.
2: I have so many notes on this already. Uh, Okay, please go (laughs) ahead. Go ahead. You are referring to an old system that we have since corrected. So we, we have changed our ways since that happened. I believe the movie you're referring to is The Invisible Man, correct? Yes. Okay, so let's let's call it the invisible man rule. We have okay. like changed the rules because of this uh ranking that happened. But I still like for two people not to be able to overtake a list. Like I'm still a little frothy over the Irishman getting into our top 10 one year because two people liked it a lot. So it's always been ranked but ranked in tiers based on how many lists it was on. Uh now it's changed so that it just has to hit a certain number of lists to qualify so if it's on half Uh, of our list then it could count okay it used to be it used to be tiered so like stuff would go to the top just for for more occurrences but we've we've abolished that system since the uh invisible man incident oh
1: okay
0: so maybe this is all (laughs) pointless and i'm wrong
1: not be aged
0: but my understanding was that we were still doing it that way and that we had not fixed it because of the invisible man rule And look, I'm going to be completely upfront cards on the table. The way that I think of it is that if any movie that is somebody's number one should be on the list, that's just the way that I think about it. But I also understand that's very self-serving, especially because for me, I'll often pick a number one that nobody else saw or isn't on anybody else's list, and then I'm sour about it.
1: Brittany also does that.
0: (laughs) And so do I.
1: Yeah, so I don't think it's that unfair.
0: And in, in what way? You also do what? Oh, I, do what? I
1: said Brittany also does that, like puts a, usually puts a number one that isn't on yeah, her, anybody's number her one. Her number one
2: fave last year was Saltburn. That was on no one's list. Yeah. I've had number ones in the past that not enough people saw to qualify for our top ten list. Yeah. It's a collective okay. list.
1: I'm just saying that you're not being self-serving.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I I guess my my thought process is, if I think something is the best movie of the year, even if nobody else saw it, or I guess, I again, I'm making it self-serving. If uh, John Doe, contributor to Mm SwampFlix.com, thinks that, for instance, just to pull a movie out of the air, The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future (laughs) was was the number one movie of the year it should be on our group top 10 list by virtue of having been somebody's favorite but i also understand that that is bananas
2: like that it can't force that to happen well with ranked choice voting it wouldn't work anyway uh, no because you get a certain number of points and it would have been outnumbered anyway
0: exactly so i was trying to find a median between yeah. what we do and what is my extremely self-serving variation of, of what we do mm. um and so what I did was I went through and I looked at everybody's top ten. I did not go beyond the top ten. And Ali, one year I think maybe in twenty twenty two, you had five. So yes, what I did was any movie that was number one at the top of somebody's list got ten points. If it was their number two, it got nine points, et cetera, et cetera, until their tenth list, their tenth item on their list, which got one point. And what I found really fascinating about doing this uh, was that. In reality, it actually didn't change the lists as much as I would have thought. Um, for, uh, I only went back to 2019 because that was when, Brandon, you started including James's list in the text of that was associated with the podcast. Since he doesn't really write those out, he verbalizes them on the podcast. And what's funny is, 2019, the top four movies are in the exact same spots. Midsummer number one, Parasite number two, Knife and Heart number three, In Fabric number four. And all of the rest of the movies are still on the list. Numbers five through 10, they're just in a slightly different order. Where our published version was Knives Out at number five, The Lighthouse at six, Us at number seven, Beach Bum at eight, Uncut Gems at nine, and Irishman at number 10. Whereas in the ranked choice system, The Lighthouse came in at number five, Uncut Gems at six. Knives Out at 7, Us at 8, The Beach Bum at 9, and then The Irishman tied for 10th with Swallow, which is a bit of a weird one because Swallow was on our published list for 2020 Best of the Year. So somebody, I guess, saw it early. I'm
2: disagreeing with so many metrics here, like... Well, yeah, Cece. CC and I saw it early. She had it on a list a year there earlier. I didn't want to disclude her vote, right? I include. I I held that for my list till the next year. Whatever. This is really hard to wrangle. No, but I, I, I understand. You're also. It's also a flawed metric because you're discluding half of the movies someone listed. So, like in my eye, if you list 20 movies, you have to be prepared for any one of those movies being our number one movie of the year. That is you saying. This is one of the best films of the year and deserves recognition as, as such.
0: Well, I agree with you that we should we should all be making lists of 20. Uh, <laughs> I agree with that point. But I
2: can't control other people. I can
0: only I, yeah, you do can't, what
1: I got. You can't control me.
2: <laughs> I can't get James to write out a list. I can't get Allie to give a consistent number of movies. Uh, Brittany is the same. You know, it's I'm hurting cats over here.
1: Yeah, you're doing great. What
2: I'm trying to do you're with is... <laughs> including as many voices as possible on the group list well i i don't i don't want this to come across as an attack um (laughs) well there are receipts
0: (laughs) i i I just i i'm just a i'm just a data freak i love data i love to look at it i like to rank it
1: given your giallo your your argento scale we're aware yeah, I mean, your, your data love. I mean, I I'm into it.
0: I, I definitely want to make it clear that I'm I'm this is not a personal attack, Brandon. I'm not and I don't you know, I know that you can't we're not all in a schoolhouse and you're not standing over us with a ruler. <laughs> you can't force us all to make us a 20. I do and you do.
2: And I will say early on, especially like around 2015-2016, before we started podcasting and like talking more regularly, and everyone was just watching movies kind of in isolation, I did have to pull from a wider pool of titles to get us to 10 every year. There weren't 10 mm-hmm. movies that all of us had seen it overlapped. Uh, and a lot of those early lists have like weirdo outlier choices like Pee Wee's Big Holiday and The Boy, like ranking very oh, highly yeah. because they were movies that all of us happened to, to see and enjoy, not because like any of us felt like super passionate about them. What Fair I would enough. say about your point about your number 1 movie not making the group list is that i would be a lot more open to that if everyone's individual thing wasn't published so like you have a published thing you can point to saying this was my favorite movie of the year that's not being erased by five other voices that that's out there in a statement it's there and and that's fair <laughs> and then there's the group list of the overlap that everyone enjoyed you
0: know i think my my biggest failure in this was assuming that everyone else would be amused by and interested in this data tabulation that I did which now that I say it out loud um, okay. I understand my foolishness in that in that area
1: Okay I am I'm not saying to that show I you am amused
0: am Okay Brandon you do a lot of work I'm for not going to listen to it
2: without debating it
0: I yeah and you do a lot of work for us you 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 put a yeah. lot of work in I don't mean to discount anything that you do I just thought this would be interesting, and I thought that I would be open about where my initial interest in doing all of this came from, which came from a place of, you know, being a sore loser, I I guess, sort of. And then finding out (laughs) that, actually, even if we did it the way that, in my mind, I thought would change everything—
2: it actually doesn't change all
0: it that much. Changes it barely
1: changes yeah. well, anything. Barely changes anything. Because I was doing
2: a hybrid version of what you want already. Like I was just doing it in tears. <laughs>
0: it sounds like you're you're going to be doing it in tears some more because I've hurt you.
2: No, I'm not. I'm not upset. <laughs> I will not sit here and listen to it without debating it though. Okay. Because I have reasons for all this stuff.
0: Fair I mean, enough. Fair yeah. enough. I what I actually found were was that things that you enjoyed more that often did not make it onto the top 10 list, but were higher in your individual list, like doing it with ranked choice actually made your list stronger, your individual list than mine or anybody else's. So for instance, you <laughs> and CC really loved We Are Little Zombies, and that did not make it onto the published top 10 list for 2020, but using the ranked choice voting system that I tabulated, it would have been number four. And 2020 and 2022 are the ones... With the biggest discrepancies, 2020 has a discrepancy of four movies: um, Invisible Man, Baccarat, Swallow, and His House, which I loved and was in my top three. Would not have been on the list in the ranked choice voting, um, but it would have included We Are Little Zombies, which you loved, First Cow, which I, I could not bring myself to care about, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which would have which would have made my heart a little happier. And then especially Ask Anybody at number 10, which I know was one of your absolute favorites that year.
2: And I'm the only person who's seen it. So how could it be one of Swamp Flex's favorite movies if one out of six people have seen it? I, 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 I
0: hmm, we're in a, this is a larger thing than I <laughs> thought it was going to be. In the sense that I thought this would be less political, but I guess it is sort of political. Feeling a it, lot like... of
1: uh, structural prog- problems, apparently.
2: No, it's, I I think the system works. And maybe that's what you're saying? That was my ultimate finding okay (laughs) was that
0: i don't want to rock the boat on this you know my feelings about things didn't bear out in the data you you've talked Um, about
1: it before on mike and uh yeah you just wanted to let everybody know publicly yeah everyone
0: everyone knows now that i was wrong that i was wrong i was so wrong um especially because except for in 2023 the number one would have been the same across the board. The only difference in 2023 is that if it were ranked choice, poor things would, in fact, have been number one, and it would have exchanged places with Barbie, which would have ended up at number three.
2: I don't agree with that. Ranked choice, but only counting people's top tens, because Barbie did win in a ranked choice system. But it, yeah, it's just but... you're, you're not including everyone's 11 through 20. I I would love yeah. to if if I had it. Look. I have to go
0: based on the data sets that are equivalent across the board.
1: Yeah, you're going from what you've got.
2: But I do that. I do that. So what I do is if if you submit 10 movies, I still count your number one as 20 and your number 10 as 11 points. I just don't have any points to give you down the line after that.
0: I see. So, for instance, I think Barbie ended up at my number 15. So. With your main choice that you're, because for one thing, foundationally, I misunderstood that you had changed things because of the the Invisible Man upset,
2: which is something I I consulted you about. Uh, we had a whole text chain about it a couple years ago.
0: I, I I'm sorry that that's <laughs> that was a that was a picnic at Hanging
2: Rock, man. It's gone. It's it's not in my brain anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, Barbie was our favorite movie of the year.
1: Yeah, it was.
2: I think it's just like, it is kind of disappointing because it is like such a popular movie. (laughs) But like, that's the nature of all these things, right? It's like the the most inoffensive, easily likable stuff tends to rise to the top. We have a small pool of people with like eccentric tastes. So like. There is a chance for something like Deer Skin to become you one of our favorite movies of the year. Call us freaks. You can just call us freaks.
1: Yeah. We are not offended.
2: I do think more people would have watched We Are Little Zombies if it didn't have zombie in the title. It's not a movie about zombies, but no one else watched it but me and CeCe. Shame. Good movie. Okay.
0: All right. Well, I just would I wanted to also point out that in 2021, a movie that you really loved, French Exit, would have ended up at number five. Um in what I guess we'll call Boomers underscore ranked choice to differentiate it from the Swamp Flicks standard underscore ranked choice. <laughs> Since is this going to be a
1: whole separate uh feature, a whole separate Swampflix feature? You're gonna do your top I, God, I top ten, not. and then you're gonna do your you know, your ranked like an alternate
2: choice alternate top ten. Yeah, yeah. Here's my question: Is this good podcasting? Like, God, um, I hope so. We no. spend the whole year. We spend the whole year like putting no. together these lists. I think they're mostly for us, not for other people. You know, what? know. maybe I'm wrong about that. Within our fandom, probably.
0: Right?
1: I I don't. <laughs> mm, sorry, I'm going to say no, it's not good podcasting. As much as I love, I love picking over some some data. Don't worry. I'm going to disagree that it's good podcasting. Sorry.
2: I should let Boomer have the final word because I jumped in more than I expected to.
1: Yeah, please tell us your findings though, your conclusions.
2: No, I'm over it.
0: It's bad podcasting. Okay. <laughs> Except to say I okay, well, loved Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. It would have been on the 2022 list with the Boomers underscore ranked choice voting.
1: I appreciate knowing that one.
0: But, Thank and, you. And and movies that I loved, including His House in 2020. The Green Knight in 2021. And oh, most yeah, because I played The
1: Green Knight on mine, too, right? Like, me, you, yeah. and James all had The Green Knight and, on there.
0: And we got it up to number five in the Swamp Flick Standard underscore ranked choice voting map. Okay.
1: See, I was going to say, I thought it was on there. So it was it higher, was, but it
0: wouldn't what? have been with ranked choice. I mean, sorry, with boomers underscore ranked choice mathematics. Oh, but yeah, I I just I thought it was interesting that it actually didn't change things all that much. But if it's not if it's not interesting, maybe dear listener, you haven't heard any of this. <laughs> maybe Brandon just cut
2: it all. I also do some shrewd editing on the on the podcast. it's yeah. true. Anytime we don't talk about movies for five minutes, that shit sits in the floor.
1: Yeah, that's one hundred percent fair. <laughs>
0: um, well, I guess the other thing that I shared was um this image from social media where someone explained their star ranking system. And I have gotten into a discussion with people in my that I know and see in, in the meet space in real life about how and we talked about this briefly. I I just think it's more fun to enjoy a movie than it is to dislike it. I think that movies are good, actually. And like so much of the online discourse is really influenced by like driving engagement via negativity because more people are gonna be like, yeah, I also hated that. Yeah we got
1: we got a negativity bias in our brains.
0: And part of what makes Swamp Flick special is that we freaks, we little freaks, uh we have a positivity bias, I think a little bit. I think of us as like the antidote to like the contemporary state of film discourse. So this um, ranking that this person posted from one to five stars of one star, not even fun to watch, agree. Two star, terrible, but there's worse, agree. And then here's where things start to get interesting. Three stars, either well-made, but I didn't enjoy myself, or deeply flawed, but I did enjoy myself, which actually fully reflects how sometimes I'll write a negative review of something and give it a three stars, or a positive review of something and give it three stars. And then at three and a half stars, we've got neat, but not special. Four stars, love it. Four and a half stars, near perfect with some reservations. And five stars, new hyperfixation. And given the way that I've had to have, like, these conversations in real life where people are like, how can you give this four stars? You're a film critic. And my my response mm-hmm. is always like, yes, I am the film critic in this conversation. That makes me right. Who you know, like, are I, you? I actually... Yeah. Who are yeah. you? I've written hundreds of reviews. And if I say it's actually great, then it's actually great because it's just more interesting to enjoy things. I'm sorry that I wasn't South Park pilled as a child. Where I find gaining enjoyment out of something to be cringe, you know, I just I had been poisoned that way.
1: Um, I don't think I ever told you all this, uh, but uh, my sister-in-law one day like was trying to dra- describe Swampflix to somebody because it had come up in conversation. Um, surprisingly, I did not bring it up, but um, she was like, "Yeah, your thing is like." Y'all review bad movies, right? And I was like, no, we just like movies.
2: No, we just have terrible taste.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so I just thought y'all I, should know that disagree. our best <laughs> of loving things um, causes well, us to be misconstrued, which I don't like.
2: Well, when you say you review bad movies, the the context of that is usually like, oh, we're picking on something. Like I'm gonna yeah. go pick this movie that's. Cheaply made, maybe a little technically inept, and I'm gonna make fun of the ways that it falls short of looking like a legitimate production. Yeah. Right. But that's not ever been our vibe here. If we give like five stars to a bad movie, quote unquote, it's because we loved it. And I believe our enthusiasm is usually for like artistic statements that uh, might fall outside the usual metrics of what's good or bad. Yeah. But we're we're actually genuinely expressing appreciation for the end product even if the means were like not perfect.
0: Right. Yeah. I guess what I will say is when we talk about five stars new hyperfixation where it's absolutely the best. I guess I'm going to go ahead and transition and and talk about what I've been watching. Um because most Jeez. recently I saw Madam webb which uh I gave five stars. Um That's everyone beautiful. everyone hates this movie and I'm not going to try and carry water for it as a corporate product i'm not going to try and carry water for it as a movie that's act that's quote unquote great actually i do think that it's good actually um you know something like morbius which came out a couple of years ago i remember saying it was definitely the worst movie of the year and brandon you objected saying that it was too boring to be considered that
2: yeah it's there's nothing exceptional about it it's just gruel but
0: that that to me how boring it is is exceptional it's exceptionally boring
1: my thing is like something is really bad when it's boring like if i just vehemently don't like it i'm impressed that something gave me such a strong reaction and i considered it that bad but when it's boring i'm just like i lost two hours of my life watching this i think this is a terrible movie
2: it's just like I didn't walk away from the theater hating it. I just walked away from the theater immediately forgetting it. Ah, uh, okay. I didn't have enough ire to like hold it in my heart all year, like, fuck that movie. Cause uh, there's just like nothing to it. It just like dissipates like, as soon as you walk away from it.
1: There's plenty of movies that I hate, but I will acknowledge that are like just based on the fact that it gave me that reaction. I'm impressed.
0: Yeah. And and there are also mm. things that I recognize as being like technical achievements, but don't connect with me in any way. Like, for instance, if I were hypothetically making a list of my favorite movies of all time, I would not include 2001 A Space Odyssey, even though I recognize it as a masterful piece of film and a technological achievement. A uh, technical achievement, a wonderful movie that uh, has been very meaningful for a lot of people. It doesn't mean anything to me. So I would not include it in that list, whereas I would also not include, you know, something that might mean something to someone else, even though it's also a wonderful movie, perhaps not on the um, cultural importance scale of 2001.
2: I think generally like there's no point in trying to objectively rank films or rate films being like this is good for its cinematography or its editing, which I mean those do contribute to why you love a movie. But, like, do you really want every publications list to be cluttered with the same titles because everyone agrees on, like, technical mastery and, like, objective quality? Or do you want, like, uh, an insight into the, the qualities that that specific set of critics finds valuable and the movies that spoke to them? Like, I'd much rather see a personal list of movies you loved more than, like, an objective list of movies you valued highly. Well, I think that way more
0: interesting should be published annually. And the second should uh, a crank should come along years later and, uh, and, and, and (laughs) fetch some numbers to make um, him feel less bad about his own choices and whether or not he uh, has the ability to connect to others at all.
2: There are too many states these days. Please eliminate three. <laughs> I am not a crackpot. I am
0: not a crackpot. I am not a crackpot. All right, all right. Easy now. Who's eating your thoughts? Okay. Um, Madam Webb, uh, this movie is is everything that makes it related to Spider-Man is bad. Um uh, here's a quick summary of this movie if you somehow haven't missed it. Uh, or somehow have missed it. Dakota Johnson, um, the scion of the Tippy Hedron dynasty. Uh, is in this movie where she is trying to make you forget about her connection to the Fifty Shades of Grey movies because, admit it, until this moment you kind of had forgotten about that because all that you can think about is Madam Web. Um, She plays a woman who can kind of see the future in little flashes and she has to protect three teenage girls who will eventually grow up to become um, spider women of their own kind uh, who will maybe kill this villain who also is spider related. He wears like a black Spider-Man suit. His name is Ezekiel. And as we all know, he was in the Amazon with Cassie Webb's mother, who is Dakota Johnson, Cassie Webb's mother researching spiders right before she died. Um, That is the thing that everybody knows about this. It's made its way all the way up to Dakota Johnson herself, where I I think possibly one of the worst things to happen to film criticism other than the way I started this podcast tonight um, is the fact (laughs) that interviews now are conducted by like incredibly online young people who are interacting with actual famous people who have no idea what they're talking about. So, I, I mean, I think that probably the first hundred or so times that celebrities were asked about a meme that involved them, it was novel and fresh. And look, I'm not here to carry water for celebrities either, and not for Nepo babies, but leave this woman alone. Don't ask her to explain why a line went viral. Leave her out of this.
2: I don't know, I kind of like the way she's been making people squirm when they do it, though. Like, a lot of celebrities seem kind of, like, taken aback, or just like, why are you doing this to me? She more, like, puts the screws on these, like, Content farmers and makes them like yeah,
0: sit in their own dirty kind of bath water
2: <laughs> She's mommy doming them,
0: and that they energy is the energy that she brings into this movie, and that is one of the reasons that I really loved it. She is so funny in this. Whether she's just like mm, las aranas fighter people, I I don't I, I I wrote out a whole bunch of thoughts. I even once I sent it over for publication, I was like, oh, I forgot to mention the fact that like. She has a co-worker in this movie who dies because she has a vision of him getting into a horrible vehicular accident. So she tries to stop him and in so doing delays him long enough that the accident actually happens, which I don't think the narrative meant for us to recognize that. Um The way that she addresses other people, the way that she talks to these teenagers, the way that she talks to everyone, it's just Dakota Johnson exasperated. And that is a lot of fun to me. Uh, If you take a shot every time there's some sort of like web image on the screen, you will die before the movie is over. There's (laughs) like a really, it's a really extensive like attention to detail that I think you know, is actually praiseworthy. Like a scene will start and it'll be kind of through a gauzy or a mesh curtain or through a chain link fence or through some breeze blocks. And then the camera will pan a little so that that obstruction is gone. And then the scene will continue. So that like throughout the film, through it's like filmic language, you are constantly reminded of one fact. And that is that her web connects us all. Um, I I, I, am going... This movie is like Lost in Space or Battlefield Earth or Showgirls, which we'll get to in a second, where I I think that it transcends being a bad movie to become like a true piece of art. You cannot include Showgirls on that list and get away with it. I mean, I think that Paul Verhoeven is maybe smarter than all of us. Uh, the Starship Troopers yes, scores the past couple. Of weeks. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, maybe Showgirls doesn't belong in this list, but I also he uh, does that know is a movie. Uh, that is a movie that I would say is so bad it's good, but perhaps not because of its sincerity. That one is is intentionally it it. it I don't know. Maybe Pumpkin would be a better. I think example. that was just
2: so good it's good. <laughs> Personally, it's campy, but yeah.
0: it's, it's not bad. I I just I'm going to go ahead and say, for the record. I really think you should give Madam Web a chance. I know that that sounds dumb. I know it sounds like I'm making memes. I know it sounds like I'm more. I, I, I'm morbing it, you know. But really and truly, Madam Web is the most fun that I've had in a movie theater in a long time. Go get some nachos. I don't know. Have a drink or a um, substance beforehand. Laugh. <laughs> enjoy yourself. You know, her web connects us all. What more is there to say?
1: So... Okay, I know we've done a lot of tangenting, but uh you mentioned morbing and we're talking about like meme films, etc. But let me bring up sexism for a moment. Um Has okay, there yes, been absolutely. a female led movie that has gone to like morbid levels? Like I know everybody, unfortunately, we all failed, tried to make Jupiter ascending a thing. We sure did. But I don't think it really it was really the same degree. Like, Morbius, like, apparently, I never saw it because I heard Brandon talk about how boring it was, Um, was bad.
2: Yeah, but I don't understand the metric. It it was bad and no one watched it and people made m- memes making fun of it. And yeah. the studio re-released it thinking that the memes meant people had an appetite for it. Yeah. And then it bombed a second time. But I, so, like, I don't understand the metric. There. I guess
1: what I'm saying is, like, I feel like a lot of people did make fun of Jupiter Ascending, and still, it made it popular. But, like, has that ever happened with a female-led film, where it's just been the subject of such a popular meme? And, like, once again, I do not care that it is all in jest. I'm just curious, because... I don't know. It's, it feels weird. It feels weird, okay? That's all I'm saying.
2: I mean, I would say Glitter from um, oh, Mariah you're Carey. Oh, right, you
1: Glitter the first one that comes to mind.
2: Um, There's been a reclaiming of uh, Crossroads this year Um, because everyone's got like early 2000s fever. It
1: did not uh, need reclaiming.
2: Okay. We all appreciate it. I would also say that's a boring movie.
1: I was going to say, it's it's not a good movie. I don't like it, but it already had a a very specific cult fan base of people Uh, who would never call themselves cult. Recently,
2: I'd say the most like female centric, like so bad it's good hit was Cats, which was like just Uh, before the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you got me, you got me at Cats. You're right.
2: Uh, Zizli starring, uh, (laughs) Benefer, um, where she says gobble gobble time and pats her vagina. Pretty, pretty (laughs) female centric. You can't
0: possibly believe that that's how that's pronounced, right? You're doing a bit, right? (laughs) What do you think it is? It's Geely, but I'll, I'll admit uh, that. Whatever. I saw the movie recently. I sucks. saw it. Oh, yeah, it, it's, it's terrible.
1: Sucks.
0: Gobble it's gobble yeah, indeed. I would I would say maybe Tank Girl. Tank Girl was a movie that was not very well liked. Uh, Tank Girl just ripped. So. Yeah, I was going I think that it it and Earth Girls Are Easy benefited from. Being commercial failures that that were then cheap to license for cable television and then found yeah, their but audience.
1: That's not, but okay, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the memification of like, in the ironyfication, ironifying. I don't know. That's that's what about Dearest?
2: What about whatever happened to so, Baby Jane?
1: I, this is more, so many. Okay, but this, every
2: lifetime
0: movie. No, would be no, this is Barbie? more of a
1: recent phenomenon.
0: Do we think that Barbie would have been as successful if it weren't for, like, the Barbenheimer? like?
1: See, that is one that I would think about, is would that yeah. one. But I do think it would, because I'm not the only person who was obsessed with Barbies as a child. Um, and I've never been afraid to admit it. I don't think I'm the only person like that. I think a lot of us have been closeted Barbie fans for a long time. Some of us more closeted than others. But uh, I don't know. You might be right on that because, yeah, it's the ironic fan, quote unquote, based marketing that I guess I'm talking about.
2: Uh, Megan last year had a like viral marketing campaign. Oh, my God. Yes.
0: That is an excellent example. Oh, I yeah, think.
1: you're right. Megan is a good example of that, um, especially like having been claimed by the gays. Once the gays claim something, you know
2: i would say like the major deficit there if we're just talking about like gender binary is like uh-huh. who's the femme nick cage like every uh, movie nick cage is has like yes. instant meme potential
1: we don't have but there aren't nick a lot Cain. of like it is, dakota,
2: is dakota johnson Damon, who are allowed to go Appleistic.
1: oh yeah. no it is it's dakota, dakota johnson.
2: johnson she is the meme queen no actually she's allergic no. dakota to dakota limes more that um if we're doing Dakota Johnson as a meme, she is the go girl give us nothing do a leap a meme. She is underselling yeah. this stuff. It's not it's a different kind of charisma.
1: But yeah, I mean I think in and of itself that we don't have a female Nick Cage is this whole other gender problem. Cause we don't like it when women are weird on screen, really, as like a culture, not us. We all love when women are weird on screen.
0: Uh, the more distressed they are, the better. The closer yeah, exactly. to the edge, the more the I'm there.
1: Um, no, I mean, y- y- y'all have proved me wrong. Y'all have proved me wrong. I just think, like, there's this viral marketing, like the whole like Zack Snyder br- bros and the Morbius bros. It's a lot of bros. But yeah, you might be right about Barbenheimer. You might be right. And like, anytime in film, people have like a meme. You might be right.
2: The prime example, if you want to cite misogyny, is that The Room is a misogynist work it is and it's like an interesting peek into someone's broken brain oh my god Uh, but the irony poisoning of the audience has gotten so over the top now where like they kind of seem like they're celebrating the misogyny in like a really upsetting way so like the room's like much more interesting to watch by yourself than it is to watch with a crowd of yeah you know men throwing spoons
1: (laughs) or you know with a group of your trusted friends
2: Because we've
0: already talked about it a little bit. I'll also mention that for the first time a week ago, I did see Showgirls from 1995. I had not seen it before other than in like an extremely edited cut to shit version that used to air on VH1 at like one in the morning where they had those horrible cartoon bras over the women. (laughs) It, It reminds me a lot like in retrospect of when E, the entertainment network tried to air episodes of sex in the city for like afternoon television for basic cable. The only time I ever saw this was at the laundromat and there's an episode where um, Kim Cattrall was like considering getting a uh, plastic surgery. And so the doctor is like drawing on her body with a marker, but they put this like ludicrous, they didn't even use like an, uh, a censorship bar. It's like a cartoon bra over her breasts but imagine that (laughs) for like the entirety of showgirls and that was how it was on vh one um i always thought that this movie was um probably as bad as people said but also possibly great and i'm pleased to announce that i uh love its joys um this movie was great it was wonderful it was hilarious it perhaps has no flaws um for those who don't know, because apparently there are a lot of people who are younger than us who don't remember the showgirls uh, phenomena and how like bananas it was and how everybody was talking about it. I mean, I guess that was like 30 years ago. But uh, Paul Verhoeven directs this movie starring Elizabeth Berkley, um, who at the time was best known for <laughs> <and> <laughs> to this day is best known for appearing on Saved by the Bell uh, as Jesse. Um she is a woman who plays no me. She plays a woman named no me Malone as in "Know me. I'm alone who comes to Vegas to become a showgirl, and then becomes embroiled in the dirty, seedy, filthy, sexual politic of making it in Las Vegas. Um, after watching it, I watched the, the Siskel and Ebert episode in which they discussed it. Uh, Roger called it all about Eve and a G-string, which is accurate. I have a belief that this is a beloved film among this group. Is that the case?
2: I really liked it as a kid. Like, too young to see it. <laughs> but I am, I have been reluctant to revisit it, um, even as it's getting a lot of praise recently. because. The sexual assault scene like looms large in my head, so like I never want to be like sitting down with a group of friends and being like, "Hey, let's watch this fun stripper movie." Oh yeah, by the way, it has one of those brutal rape scenes I've ever remember seeing in a film when I was a teenager. Okay, it never comes
1: up. So that is exactly why I haven't right. seen it yet. Actually, it is Sorry, brutal,
2: y'all. Allie. It is brutal. Yeah it is purposeful in the satire of oh the piece, yeah too. like sure it has a political it's, purpose yeah. it's just hard to sit through
1: yeah exactly like i know that a lot of movies have scenes like that and they're hard to sit through um so i just need to you know do the whole like does the dog die website and find out exactly when and, you know kind of turn away know that it happens
0: yeah it is what prevents this from being like an undisputed cult classic like I think if it's, if it weren't for that scene, which is almost too much, like, again, I'll echo what you said, Brandon, it has a point within what is being satirized, but as an audience member, it is one of the most brutal ones that I've ever seen. And in the sense that like, even though it's, it feels like it goes on forever, it's very horrible to watch. That is I mean, big trigger warning for everyone who might be interested in seeing it. I would love to see a cut of the film that just cuts that. Maybe like that would be a five star movie, but then we're getting into like George Lucas territory. and i I don't know. maybe we're, we're we're cross purposes with that. Um, I guess the last thing that I could say about Showgirls is that while watching it, I thought that it would pair really well with a with a screening of poor things. Like, I think those two movies in communication with each other about, like, a woman who seems incredibly naive and a woman who seems to have no understanding of how the word world works finds herself surrounded by people who um, try to take sexual advantage of her, but whom she turns that around upon. Um, with the difference being that uh, Poor Things is is, like, great. <laughs> and Showgirls is wonderful in its own way i guess we should say um i'm gonna try and move quickly through these i know we've got a lot to talk about tonight i recently with some friends rewatched the 1989 classic she devil which i really enjoy and i also would presume to be well liked within this uh community
2: yeah i like the movie a lot very big personal favorite for Brittany, by the way
0: oh that's good to know um so this one it's from 1989 it stars formal former uh sort of blue-collar hero turned right wing lunatic roseanne barr uh as a woman who is left by her nebbish ed begley jr husband for his client who is meryl streep in one of her wonderful early comedic roles in fact, the reason that we watched this one is that we've been in the friend group, we've been trying to get around to it ever since we saw Death Becomes Her.
1: Oh, such a great one.
0: I, I agree. Uh, and for that, for a lot of the people in the Friend group, that was the first time they saw like young comedic Meryl Streep. Like she herself is not like a Nicolas Cage type meme person, but she is mimetic in the sense that like everybody just knows that she's the greatest living actress. So there are people who without having seen her work have absorbed through pop cultural osmosis this idea that she's just like the greatest actress and therefore don't realize that like it's not all you know lorenzo's oil and uh doubt like it's you know it's a lot of other stuff too like death that comes her and she devil uh in she devil she plays this like paperback romance novelist who has this giant like Barbie dream house. They pull up to it and it looks like the um the house that the creator of Malibu Stacy lives in in that episode of the Simpsons where Lisa creates her own doll. Like it's just pink, it's got the big gilded front. She has this like giant indoor pool where it has like a privacy like mosquito netting like you would have over a bed and she sometimes just puts bubbles in it. And so she sort of accidentally um steals Ed Begley Jr. from Roseanne Barr. So she burns down their house, leaves the children with the husband, and then goes on like a really long revenge plan that involves like making money, ruining the lives of her uh, ex-husband and his new love. And like, in the process, sort of accidentally creating like jobs for women, like not even intentionally, but uh, that's part of the plot. So I really enjoy this one. It's I think it's an underrated gem. I think it's very funny, and nobody ever talks about it. So I wanted to go ahead and, and make another uh, recommendation for She-Devil. Um, I, as a single person, gathered with some other single people this year on Valentine's Day to rewatch Amelie, which I had not seen probably in at least 10 years. Um, it's so
2: good. Yeah. We did a um, recent episode on the uh, value of twee
0: yeah it's was such a, a twee movie
1: we all love twee here that's the thing and i love that for us
0: i agree i agree
1: but also okay omelie is one of those movies where i watched it uh when i was definitely susceptible to the twee fever and was like this is one of the best movies ever um and i still love it but as an adult watching it i'm just like man omelie is so spectrumy And I love it for that, too.
0: That's not not present.
1: Yeah, she's just like the most spectrum-y like main character, and I love it. But, you know, I don't know if that's the intent.
0: (laughs) I had a moment watching it where I was like, oh, she's so me, like for real. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, actually. Uh That's maybe not great. Maybe I've spent too much of my life like thinking like her um, after seeing this the first time. And I I will admit that it's tweeness was a reason that i have not revisited it in so long because i was concerned that you know it might not hold up like it might be too you know uh
1: you were afraid it was gonna pull a garden state uh
0: yeah yeah um but in fact it is great it is still great it's beautiful um i guess again since we always forget to give descriptors on this here podcast that's associated with swanflix.com Uh, Amelie is a French movie about a woman whose father is distant and whose mother is also distant, who uh, loses her mother at a young age, and then her father just becomes even more withdrawn. And as an only child with no one to play with and no real caretaker, she becomes, essentially, she permanently takes up residence in her own imagination. So she she moves through the world. She eventually moves to Paris and she's a waitress. But she views everything through this extremely like uh, fairy tale like lens. Um, in a modern sense, it's not like she sees people as like the Mad Hatter, but in the sense that like she wants to cause people to fall in love. And she'll sit on a rooftop and try and imagine how many people are having an orgasm at once and count them all. You know, it's a very fun life that she has it's very you know it's the she is she's like a manic pixie dream girl except that she's the main character almost Uh, i mean she's almost like a manic pixie dream girl but she is the main character i should say yeah and she eventually finds this album that a person like her has been making sort of a photo album where he goes around to various photo booths And fishes the photos that people tear up and throw away out from beneath the machines and from the trash, and sort of composes an album of these uh, disregarded broken images. Which, when she discovers it, she realizes that actually she is not alone in the world in the way that she views things through this lens of, like, you know, whimsy. Um, And then she sets out to find him, but also. Uh, finds it very difficult to actually open up to him when it's when they're in person. So they're they're kind of chasing each other for a while. The music is great. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Can't recommend it more highly. A five-star movie for me. Um, and then just to wrap things up, I did finally see Radiant is the Blood of the Baboon Heart, which is the, the Venture Brothers finale movie that came to HBO last year. It was good. If you're a fan of the show, you'll like it. Um, you might want to rewatch the last couple of seasons before you do. They got real complicated, um, and this one is is also complicated. But uh, as as a as a thing that existed and made seven seasons over the course of like my entire life, as a conclusion to that, I think it's very uh, well done closes some doors and opens some others but sometimes that's what you want just so that you can continue the story in your mind and your imagination rather than having to see it come to a definitive end at the hand of the creators
1: yeah i wish more people would accept that as an ending but anyway
2: yeah that's a Jollo title you got going there too it's it's wonderful radiant is the blood of the baboon heart yes. poetry <laughs> it's,
1: it's really also great. a very venture brothers thing to say yeah
2: oh yeah absolutely <laughs>
0: Uh, Allie, what have you been watching?
1: So, I've just, um, still been continuing my Columbo rewatch, but I want to say, since we were discussed that I was allowed to, since it's, uh, movie-length episodes, uh, TV movies, I, uh, wanted to say that a notable episode, uh, was, um... Goodbye, Miss Columbo. I don't know. I need to find the uh, episode name. But anyway, it's great. Oh, I
0: love that one.
1: Yeah, it's so good. So most Columbo episodes, for those of the people who listen who haven't already listened to us talk about Columbo and then gone out of their way to watch all of them, um, most episodes start out with us seeing the murder. We know what happens. The show is watching Columbo put together what happens, which is what makes it unique from, like, the standard detective show. Um, In this episode, we start out at a funeral. And we are led to believe that it is Columbo's wife's funeral. And there's this, a lot of voiceover, and it feels very, there's a lot of drama going on here. And, yeah, it's a lot of flashbacks to... What led up to this, including someone killing their boss, this lady killing her boss because she's trying to get revenge for her husband that Columbo got locked up, she thinks. I mean, it was all up to a court case, of course, but he was the one that figured out that he was the murderer. So this lady takes it upon herself to get revenge both on the person that snitched on her husband, causing him to do a murder, and Columbo, who, you know, he is like, I gotta put you away. Um, It's very great, and it's got this, like, ridiculous kind of almost soap opera, or, like, I don't know. I know it's referenced enough, but we'll reference it anyway. It's almost a Twin Peaksy vibe, even though it's only a... it's a couple months pre-Twin Peaks. But... because I looked it up. <laughs> anyway, the main lady, like, murderer in it, is Helen Shaver, who was Vivian in Desert Hearts. And so this oh, whole cool. time yeah. I was watching it, like, wow, I kind of love her. I love this. I love all the drama she's bringing to this. This is great. It might now, like, be one of my favorite Columbo episodes. I'm going to be honest. Um, In a show with plenty of great episodes, this one really stood out to me. I, there's just something about, you know, her playing this, like, uh, once again, we love our women unstable and weird. This unstable lady trying to get revenge for her husband and going after the cop, even though the cop like, is just like, I know it's her. I just need to get proof that it is her. Because yeah, the whole time he's just kind of putting on this act and of course it is, he did not actually succeed in killing Columbo's wife. This is totally an act. He puts on a fake funeral, which is the most, like, it is unhinged in a way only Columbo can do. Because he's just always doing that stuff. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Um, big recommend if you're re-watching Columbo. The highlights, you know. Um, so uh, that's been my watching. But, I mean, if I'm allowed to talk briefly TV, it led me to find out that the same actress is in the... 1990s poltergeist TV series?
0: Oh, The Legacy.
1: Okay, I was gonna say, did either of y'all know this existed? Not me. Okay, I just won the bet because I was like, I 100% bet Boomer has watched this show. Um, It's great. No
2: Zelda Rubenstein, no deal on my end.
1: Okay, it's not the movie at all it's like they just use it an excuse of the movie to make a spooky 90s like supernatural show but it's also kind of great
0: and it's not even the only show that they did that with or the only movie that they did that with in the 90s because there was also friday the 13th the series which had nothing to do with the the friday the 13th movies
1: the 90s were just like that they're like well buffy is big so but anyway i i I started it, and I'm just like, I'm about to watch all three seasons of this show, and if they ever did a reboot, I will be a faithful follower. Um, So yeah, uh, recommend to that for people who like trashy, cheesy TV. Yeah, so uh, that's been my watching. Brandon, I'm sure your watching has been more eventful and less homebody. I'm just going to watch Columbo.
2: I've been getting out there. I've been seeing some new movies. I guess since I already mispronounced jeezly, I'm just going to stick with that pronunciation. Please. Um, we're talking about a lot of So Bad It's Good stuff. I've watched the new Jennifer Lopez visual album, This Is Me Now, A Love Story, which I don't know if you have seen any uh, promotional materials.
1: For I've seen some.
2: <laughs> it had a lot of potential to be something fun. Like uh, the, the three-minute trailer for it has all these like fantasy sequences where there's this giant heart factory uh, where like her heart is run by flower petals and she has all these factory workers like dancing to keep her broken heart alive. Wow! And like there's these rose petals flying in the wind and all this like fantasy stuff about hummingbirds and true love. And I don't know. It looks like this amazing vanity project, which it kind of is. This is her trying to make her version of like a lemonade or dirty computer or when I get home, these like, really ambitious visual albums that are like cinematic in scope and not just a loose collection of music videos right and i hate to say it but j-lo just doesn't have the juice like as a pop star i just don't find her interesting very much like i i think she's a very magnetic actress i've seen her in a lot of very good movies that she's very good in I think she's an amazing dancer. That's not even like an opinion. She just, you know, is an amazing dancer technically. And she, it's really fun to watch her do that part of her job. But like, as a pop singer, she's been around for 30 years now, feels like. And what have we gotten out of it? Like, Waiting for Tonight is a great song, but I, I dare say that's it. <laughs> I find Jenny from the block to be like a very um, embarrassing PR anthem. Yes. (laughs) It's very uh, strange to hear it celebrated. Uh, Like it's like good work when it's just, you know, public relations. And what's interesting about this movie is that I thought that even though I don't care that much about her music, that I would be like really taken with this ambition. She put $20 million of her own money in this project. uh, That's like, Promoting her new album and promoting her reunion with uh, Ben, who appears in the film as two different characters, one himself and the other a Fox News commentator who (laughs) is dressed up to look like Donald Trump. Um, Beyond the factory workers, there's also this like team of there's multiple teams of people who are like helping J-Lo get by. So like she has these friends that go to all of her weddings in the movie And um, there's also a council of celebrities that play members of the Zodiac, and they just kind of chime in like a Greek chorus. Um, That sounds fun, right? That sounds like spooky, weird stuff. This movie's so normal. Like, all of the fantasy stuff is contextualized as dream sequences that she then analyzes in a therapist's office. Fat Joe plays her therapist, speaking of people on her her various teams supporting her. And it just quickly backslides from, like, JLo working with Tarzan, you know, like, the cell level, like, high fantasy stuff, quickly backslides into just, like, modern streaming era, like, rom-com J-Lo, which, which is not an interesting part of her acting career, like... Besides Hustlers, she has not done anything interesting since the 90s um, in terms of acting. The Boy Next Door is a movie that is so bad, it's bad. It
0: really wants to be so bad, it's good. But it doesn't have the sincerity that makes Madam Webb the one that connects us all.
2: I think that movie's sincere. There's a couple funny moments in it, but it's mostly just boring. That's its main sin.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: It's not like winking at the camera. as As is required of me
0: by my birthright i must also point out that if you had my love is a bop
2: oh i do like that song. yeah
0: and okay. in, in addition to waiting for tonight
2: would mariah carey have smashed if you had my love much harder than JLo did probably
0: mm. yeah
1: you might be right
0: you're gonna get me in a lot of trouble at the bar i can't say anything or <laughs> i'm gonna get jumped um, uh oh. Love don't cost a thing is is also not very good. Oh. In addition to Jenny from the Block as her other like big hit, Love don't cost a thing is it's fine, but it's I don't think it deserved to
1: be. Okay, a hit. I I I kind of I kind of really like that one, but I get it, I get it. But also, there were a lot of things like that sounded like old, that though. a little bit. But yes, they are like decades old.
2: I will say this: I do, I did really appreciate her Super Bowl halftime show a couple years ago. But it was also co-headlined with Shakira and had a lot of um, spectacle yeah. supporting it. Uh, so I don't know. I, I just I think she's like a middling pop star. If if she's like a triple threat, that's like her least threatening um, arm of her career. Uh, and I thought the movie would overcome it in like these like high fantasy ambitions, and it really quickly backslides into her like least interesting preoccupations. And it's just kind of like a tepid, nothing of a movie. Yeah. Another movie that wasn't quite as fun as I wanted it to be, but was a little better. I saw Lisa Frankenstein in theaters. Uh, it is the directorial debut of Zelda Williams, Robin Williams' daughter, which I did not know until after I saw the I movie. I did not huh. know that either. Wow.
1: Uh,
2: but it was written by Diablo Cody, which I did know watching it because yeah. if you have an ear for that dialogue, you, I was going to say you it.
1: can't not know that. But yeah,
2: it was very cute. It reminded me a lot of when I was a kid and you would get like movies that kind of look like Tim Burton movies confused for his work. Mm -hmm. It's like before you knew what an auteur was, you'd be um, forgiven for mistaking like Coneheads or Casper or the Addams Family movies as being the same thing as Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. And this movie is kind of in the same ghoulish suburbia as that 90s era of Tim Burton's work. Um, it's set in the late 80s, uh, so it's it's around that time, and as the title suggests, it's a mashup of cutesy, ghoulish content from that era, but it's more like Tim Burton and John Hughes than it is like Lisa Frank and Frankenstein. Um, Cole Sprouse plays the creature that is raised from the dead by an angsty suburban teen. Oh, I uh, love the, this. The Diablo Cody dialogue is very cute. It's, there's a lot of jokes that are funny, objectively, like good punchlines and the wardrobe's fun. I like the whole vibe of it. It it's very much in the style of like a heather's style comedy. Me. But the editing and the score just let all these like wonderful qualities just kind of rot in dead air. There's just something really off about the pacing of it. Where it's it's one of those movies where you're watching and you're like I I want to edit this myself. Like I want to get in there and snip Three seconds here after that joke—that's rough. Hits, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, do you ever feel that? Uh, like, very Brr. much.
1: Um, that's how I feel anytime I watch any episode from uh, first uh, season of uh, Star Trek: Next Generation. That's exactly how I feel. Is I'm just like, oh my god, I wish I could go to the editing room and just trim off some of this. So yes, I I definitely feel that, especially as someone who like has edited things. I'm just like, oh.
2: Tim and Eric had a good way of turning that unintended pause after a joke into its own oh, yes. um cringe <laughs> space like in this like kind of weaponized way. This is one of those movies that's like doing it by mistake. Like there's just like a lot of like great parts that aren't quite assembled in the right way. But if I was 13 and I hadn't seen Heather's before or my boyfriend's back or Edward scissor hands or all the other movies, this kind of reminds me of. Um, I would probably like it a lot more. I, you know, it's it's filling a very specific niche, and every year there's another angsty gothy suburban teen who emerges from their coffin. I was
1: gonna say, who has <laughs> no new like this. movies,
2: right? They need well, it. they have Wednesday on uh, Netflix. That you know, Tim count. Burton is still working out there. Uh, they, that show is very popular. I've been seeing a lot more goth makeup out in the world since then. It
1: it was, but it's not, you know, them going to go see a a movie in the theaters and then, like, talking about it with their friends and be like, I don't know. I don't know. I think there is still a power to movies and not just streaming things.
2: And this one is vicious, which is good. Like, it it does go for the jugular. And I would not argue with anyone who loves it, you know? (laughs) Like, I, I like so much about it. I thought it was pretty good overall. It's just like... I wanted to really love it, and it it just kind of like sits there sometimes instead of being like zippy and to the point. Um, A reason I'm a little punch drunk right now, maybe uh, a live wire, uh, when we were like debating earlier, is uh, French Film Fest started today. Oh, Uh, I'm in the middle of Film Fest mode. I went to the theater twice today. The most recent thing I saw was Omen, which was a movie that opened at Cannes last year. Uh, It is a Belgian congolese co-production about this um immigrant who returns to the congo from belgium as an adult and uh, he was supposed to be raised there to get a degree and like raise money but instead he comes home with a white pregnant bride and uh the people in congo that he's returning to his like family and acquaintances um are not happy to see him (laughs) with a pregnant white woman from Belgium. And the movie ends up being a lot about sorcery and witchcraft in that community. Uh, They say that he has the mark of the devil on him because he has this like birthmark on his face and uh, his nose bleeds because he has high blood pressure. And anyone who catches a drop of the blood is seen that he's like a sorcerer who's like trying to curse people in the village. Um, And so they use these um, traditional sorcery um, ceremonies to like, Combat his supposed evil, and he's trying to relate to this family he's been, you know, separated from as a child. Uh, and they're trying to basically just shun him again, so that he like leaves as quickly as possible. And then the movie branches out from there in a way that I found very interesting. Like you think that's going to be the main protagonist the whole time, and instead you get different perspectives, um, mostly from people who live in that community. And it takes their viewpoint more seriously. Like, it's not just this outsider story. A lot of it is just people in that community dealing with their own shit. And a lot of it is about familial obligation and, like, religious conservatism. Um, There's one character whose sister has died. And in tribute to her, his, like, gang... This is, like, a teenager. His gang of, like, street kids all dressed the way his sister dressed as, like, an homage to her. So, like, there's this gang of um, young boys wearing these, like, pink princess dresses with, like, plastic tiaras, the way that, like, you'd see a 10-year-old child wearing out in public. And they're having these, like, warrior-style battles with other gangs. Uh, One of them is this, like, marching band crew uh, that holds these pro wrestling matches in public. Um, There's a lot of stuff about the magic of breast milk. And um, there's a Hansel and Gretel sequence. A lot of like magical realist type stuff about the magical thinking of this religion, um, but taking it very sincerely and matter of fact, which I think we've praised a lot in South American movies. Um, I've seen a couple African films recently that have done this before, but this one's very immersive and smart and gives a lot of different people time to be center of the story instead of just centering, you know, someone who grew up in Europe. Returning to this stuff and looking at it like, oh, it's so strange that y'all are still living like this. I think, I think one character says to him halfway into the movie, like, Europe basically died in 2008. You're the one that's in a dying culture. We're still developing and growing here. And like, we have our own complex system and ways of thinking that you are just disregarding because it's not what you were raised with. So I don't know, very thorny movie, beautiful stuff for its budget. And just a lot of characters... Feeling immense amounts of like pain and guilt. Hmm.
1: Sounds interesting, but yeah, also sounds like it could be a bummer, but in a good way, I guess.
2: It is, and and there's a lot of like intense atmosphere, uh, especially during the like ceremonies. Um, just a lot of eerie darkness, uh, surrounding the stuff because they're trying to protect themselves from this like outside evil, uh, and it takes that very seriously, which is
1: very fair if you know anything about the history of the (laughs) combo.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's maybe something I'm not even like fully equipped to talk about, but I think it's an interesting movie. And then finally, one movie I would very strongly recommend uh, was a British film that just hit theaters and will be on Shutter, I think, at the end of May, beginning of June. It's called Stop Motion, all one word. And it's about this woman whose mother is a famous stop-motion animator. Vardy got me. <laughs> and is losing the facilities of her hands. Like, she's losing the power to move these little armatures with her fingers. So she makes her daughter do all the work and doesn't take any collaborative input from her daughter. So, like, she's basically just an extension of her mother's work. Yeah. Well, her mother calls her puppet as a pet name as well. Oh, (laughs) no. So that's very explicit. Oh, Um, man. And then her mother falls ill, and she's thinking, like, I want to finish this project before my mom dies just to make sure her life's work is completed uh, as like an homage to her, but that's what she's saying. But really deeper in her psyche, she wants to break free of that control and like make her own art. And what bubbles up from that is hideous monstrosities. She starts making stop motion puppets out of meat and rotting corpses and animal parts uh, in this way where she's kind of like blacking out and um, telling this hideous fairy tale about a character called the Ash Man. And then the further she goes into this new project, the Ash Man starts leaving the film that she's making and actually torments her in real life. And all of her creations in this stop motion world start fucking with her in reality. So it's an, it's an artist going mad story. I think it's very good. If I had any critique of it, it would be like, there are movies that are just like pure hell animation that a lot of people just don't have the patience for. So, like, Violence Voyager or Mad God or The Wolf House, I think are all, like, great cinema. But this is more like giving you small morsels of that to make it a little more palatable. you know what I mean? Yeah. The animation parts of it are, like, the real stuff. That's, like, the real art that's more powerful than the rest of the film but the movie kind of holds your hand and makes it a little more conventional than something like the wolf house which is just like pure hell from start to end uh mad god as well where it takes a little more patience and a little more loose thinking uh, and, and like less narrative focus or narrative um structure this this kind of like softens that a little bit it makes it a little more recognizable in like genre conventions but that doesn't make it any less good for what it is. Like it's, a, it's a very good version of this type of movie. Um, and if you have any taste for that kind of grotesque stop-motion horror, uh, it's definitely worth seeing. The Wolf House, which was number five on our top 2020 list.
0: But <laughs> would have been I number two in so and, and Boomers underscore ranked choice
3: mathematics. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> if you make a comedy, it has to be a small little comedy and be funny. If you make an epic, it has to be long, involving a cast of thousands. Uh, If you make an experimental film, uh, it it has to cost very little with some poor poor Sob with a handheld camera and two people who are paid nothing. If it has to be a musical, uh, everything grinds to a halt while someone stands up and and, and grinds out a number. Uh, In in fact, uh, in ruling class, uh, what am I talking about? Uh, it, it uh, I, 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 I just can't bore with, with with small, tiny, explicit things that explain us. I want scale, I want imagination, I want mystery, and above all, I want humor. And this is what attracted me to the ruling class.
1: For this week, I had my very good friends here at the Swampflix Lanyard podcast watch. The Ruling Class, uh, featuring Peter O'Toole. Um, This is a movie about the British aristocracy in the 70s, which is, of course, a time in which the British aristocracy is uh, more or less, you know, irrelevant in a lot of ways, while also trying to hold on to their way of life. Um, We start out with the 13th earl of gurney he is giving a speech about a very rousing patriotic conservative speech about the greatness of the brits and how they've built so much society and you know very like pro-colonial rousing speech and then he proceeds to go home um put on a tutu a very old military style hat And accidentally hang himself in a thinly veiled reference to autoerotic asphyxiation. That is not shown that that is what he's doing. But is definitely implied. Um, Then his family swoops in to try and decide where his inheritance is going to go. And it turns out that he has left all of his inheritance to both his longtime butler, and his son who has been institutionalized for the past seven years. And his son, who has been institutionalized for the last seven years, played by Peter O'Toole, believes that he is God, or specifically Jesus Christ, but in the very, like, Christian, like, Jesus is God sense of you know, the Trinity and all that. Stuff that only makes sense, I guess, if, you know, you are in that faith or are convinced that that's who you are. And so we go through the family's plan of robbing him of his inheritance by either committing him, well, they say to have an heir from a woman of his choosing, which is his uncle's mistress, actually, are of their choosing, rather. A woman of their choosing, who is his uncle's mistress, and then to commit him, so then they are back in charge of the family's fortune because they are in charge of this small child's wealth, or just to straight up commit him. Um, and so we watch their scheming while also witnessing a critique of the behavior of the aristocracy versus this person who has been, you know, left in an institution because he is a uh, schizophrenic. Um I personally I know there's, you know, the whole ableism aspect as a mentally ill person, like I get it. I am probably the worst mentally ill person about discarding it though. Because I personally really love this movie. I think it's hilarious. I think Peter O'Toole is great in it. Um, I love the everybody in this class is messed up and just a little bit nutty and horrible commentary. um, At the end, it turns out that once he is encouraged by his uh, new bride to become more normal and, you know, socialize himself, he is even worse of a person and uh, then is convinced he's Jack the Ripper.
2: And he's celebrated. Yeah,
1: he's celebrated for it. So yeah, it's a great uh, class commentary. And in our recent era, I feel like, of class commentary movies, you know, Triangle Sadness, Parasite, etc., Infinity Pool. If it's in real well, like this movie could be made today and we'd all still relate to it. I mean, it wouldn't be quite the same but you know it's still very fresh unfortunately
2: well it would have to be made in britain though right or at least somewhere with a noble class chosen by god yeah yeah because the sort of like central joke of it is that he's just taking their self-inflated sense of importance yes to its most logical extreme exactly it's like technically he's schizophrenic or whatever but Really, he's just like a caricature of their own ridiculous sense of self-worth. Exactly. He's like, if I am chosen by God to be noble, then therefore I am an extension of God, Mm -hmm. just like Jesus Christ. And then he starts saying grace to himself, and he's like walking around the garden saying, what a beautiful day I have made. Yes. (laughs) Because he's just like the most efficient, true to the nature of nobility member of the family.
1: Yes, exactly. Um. I was just going to say, what did y'all think about it? But it sounds like this was a hit.
2: Well, I'd be curious what Boomer thinks about it in particular, because I think its two main sins are that it is a two and a half hour comedy, which is a lot to ask. And it's also a musical where the songs are kind of bad on purpose. Yes. Like, uh, there's a lot of like vaudeville type numbers and kind of like pub drinking songs.
1: It's, um,. It's genre-spanning and um, just as disjointed as its main character, I guess.
2: It's also a foreign comedy. Like, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, British comedies can translate well to America a lot of the times. But there is a lot of culture-specific stuff that are obviously, like, dog-whistle topics for British people to lock onto and understand immediately. Where it might take you a couple contextual clues to get the joke sometimes. So I, I, I'm curious uh, if Boomer enjoyed this comedy musical <laughs> that's two and a half hours long. So I went to look at the Wikipedia page
0: <laughs> for this uh, movie after we after I watched it, which took more than a day. Like I set aside a huge like chunk of time, and then I I went to Criterion and I was like, oh, this is two and a half hours. I actually set aside two hours for this because I assumed, knowing that it was a comedy, that would not be that long. Although knowing that it was based on a play where you can have an intermission, etc. makes a lot more sense. Especially because this is kind of divided straight down the middle between like the Jesus Christ first half and the Jack the Ripper second half. Or at least you would assume it would be so on the stage when in practice it's like, I don't know, like 70% Christ and then like 30% Jack the Ripper. Um, anyway, I pulled up this Wikipedia page, and apparently the Los Angeles Times called the movie, quote, snail slow, shrill, and gesticulating. And I, I kind of agree. There were things about it that I did really enjoy. I had a lot of fun. I, I you know, you, so from 2016 to 2020, um, SNL made fun of Donald Trump like every week, Right like every week there was something about trump and making fun of him for his stupidity for his like um way that he talks you know various other things that were problems of his but the thing was saturday night live is supposed to be funny and i often did not find those sketches funny because what it was functioning as was the you know quote unquote american liberal voice of you know criticizing the aristocracy but what it was trying to do was just make you laugh because you agreed with it without actually trying to be very funny this movie i agree with like philosophically like it's like society right which we watched years ago for the movie of the month where i am in complete agreement with the thesis which is that um the ruling class is full of um people who see themselves as god or alternatively they see themselves as above the common man to the point where you know they have the right to just kill with impunity and you know some of the images i really enjoyed that like made this clear were like him addressing the house of commons at the end and it's like literally full of corpses like everyone there is so old fashioned and their ideals are so like um necrocratic as we often say about the us where you know, we live in a necrocracy, which is where the government decides who lives and who dies, and that's what's happening in the, the House of Commons.
1: Well, that's the House of Lords, is the one it, House of
0: Lords. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, House of Lords. Uh, that having been said, I don't know that I enjoyed this. Uh, I'm afraid. Um, I really, in, I really liked Peter O'Toole's performance. I appreciated the the wife who shows up that uh, is the, actually the oh, mistress yes. of his uncle, and she is brought in to portray a fictional character that Peter O'Toole's Jack, um, although it's during the period of time where he calls himself J.C., as as in Jesus Christ. Um, It's during a period of time where he believes he's married to this um, fictional character from some novel, and she shows up and pretends to be that character with the ultimate purpose of trying to produce a male heir so that they can go ahead and just get Jack out of the Line of succession and ensure that there's a male heir that this peerage can go to and they no longer have to entertain Jack's like flights of fantasy. All of that is stuff that I agree with, but I didn't necessarily think it was funny.
2: I have like two minds about it, because I also wrote the word shrill down <laughs> in my notes, because it is shrill. But it's like shrill in that like Monty Python kind of way where like yeah. everyone's yelling at top volume and like saying kind of Purposefully nonsensical, empty jargon at top volume. That's half of the movie, and the other half is this more like dry British humor. It reminded me like the Ealing comedies, like Kind Hearts and Coronets. That kind of like underplayed humor, where it's it's biting, but it's not yelly. And this movie does both of those things, kind of back and forth. And I laughed a lot at these lines that were like kind of underplayed. So like before he arrives back home from the mental institution the matriarch figure in the house asks if he's artistic oh yes meaning is he gay yes <laughs> I was, that like, was so funny,
1: like very funny is the the 13th Ar- errol gurney like he uh yeah given how he was found like the family is just like well wasn't he a little artistic <laughs>
2: Oh, okay. So I got, I got the characters they were talking about. So funny. um, Yeah, that made me laugh. Um, Just like the idea that there's a character um, who's officially assigned as like the master of lunacy was very funny. I just laughed a lot at like these kind of small turns of phrases, these like little bon (laughs) mots, and then all of that stuff is buried in just like this kind of feverish ranting of a madman, which. I kind of appreciate as just like let's make like you said with society like let's make the rich look as grotesque as possible because they are freaks. Let's play it up. Like uh it's almost like that thing like um if they were poor they would be seen as these grotesque monsters but because they're rich they're seen as like mild eccentrics.
1: Mm-hmm. Which I think they say in the movie.
2: Oh they do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um I think that all culminates with that birthing scene where to break him of his delusions of grandeur, his therapist brings home a different lunatic who thinks that he's the messiah, but this guy thinks he's the messiah of lightning and they get in this psychic battle of superpowers in the middle of the living room. Um, At one point, a gorilla in a tuxedo comes out and performs pro wrestling moves on Peter O'Toole. (laughs) And then, a baby is born. Like by the time it reached that crescendo, it was like, okay, it is pushing this shrill, mighty Python absurdism to a different level than Alec Baldwin playing Trump on SNL, which was really, it was unfunny. It was like deeply unfunny. And most of their political humor is, mm-hmm. but it was unfunny because it was so hateful. Like Alec Baldwin was seething with anger about trump and you could feel it in his performance and it was just like such a grotesque thing to look at every week and i mean the hatred is justified but that doesn't make it like funny you know right and this movie has the same kind of like seething hatred for british nobility so like half of it is like just smearing shit on the walls of this palace and then half of it is like actually pretty funny well-constructed jokes and it's kind of just amazing that this thing was made because it's such a weird impulse to do both of those things. So I don't know that I loved it, but I definitely like admired it for being like this sprawling mess with these like kind of competing sensibilities.
0: Yeah, admire more than enjoy it is something that I would, I would say is, is accurate for me as well. It very much is very clearly a play that has been you know turned into a film you know that happens all the time it used to happen more often it's clearly a play that was very popular within like you know the the people who would go and see the satire of their contemporary politics and being like really amused by it and then you transpose it to film where it has more of a permanence where it moves further in time from the politics of which it is a satire Uh, And the way that its specificity makes it dated, even while its broader points about, um, you know, uh, archaic tier systems of justice and governance, uh, you know, those are timeless, but I'm not, you know, again, that doesn't mean that I'm having fun watching it as much as I wish I was.
2: There are were very specific things happening locally right now that I was thinking about during this movie.
1: I feel like so much of it is still, like, it still feels a little too real, like I said. And as far as, like, it being a play, like, yes, you can feel the play part of it, but it definitely takes advantage of it being in the film medium by having these fantastic, like dream, like, you know, madness sequences. Um, like when the woman who's going to be his wife first shows up and it's just transformed into this like ballroom and there's like crystal chandeliers and they waltz. And, you know, I feel like filmically, like, I don't know how they did that as a play. I mean, maybe it was as fine. Uh, Like I know, a lot of wonderful things can be done with the stage, but you know, I think they do take advantage of the fact that it is on film, and they do have more than just the stage to play on.
2: And it means something different when they break the fourth wall in this than when that you would break it on stage.
0: Yeah, there's a reciprocation of energy on stage.
2: Yeah, in the room, it would be like taboo, in a way, to like break that veil, but. In the movie, it's like a Bugs Bunny type, almost like Deadpoolish, um, leveling with the audience, which I don't mind. It's just like a different flavor. But the politics are, you know, like I said earlier, like super, super British. And I was thinking about things happen- happening locally in New Orleans right now while watching it. Um, the final speech where he's going on a rant about like punitive justice and like... Uh, Basically just like punishing the citizens for being of the wrong class, Mm -hmm. like bringing back the death penalty and whatever else he was ranting about. I mean, currently right now in Louisiana, like Jeff Landry, uh, newly elected governor, is running this like legislative section where they're basically eliminating parole as an option while also lowering both the age that someone can be considered an adult while accused of a crime And also lowering the bar of like what will land you in jail for a very long time, if not life. So, like, it's not like this is separate from specific local politics to me. And even the sort of pageantry of the nobility. um, On Mardi Gras Day this year, I tried to watch this uh, PBS broadcast of the Rex and Comus Ball, which is a whole history of um, racist local ruling class politics. That uh, we could get into, but it was just so fucking weird seeing this like ancient pageantry of fake nobility where literally the ruling class of New Orleans publicly broadcast their like racist eyes wide shut spectacle every year for public consumption. And yeah, it, it doesn't feel that different from what's going on in this movie. So it doesn't feel totally locked in the past. It doesn't feel totally locked to the stage. But you kind of have to like bring the specificity of your life to it. It's not like a, you know, uh, first thing that comes to mind is like the Matrix, how you can apply the metaphor of that movie to like a million different things. Uh, this, it's like, you kind of have to meet it on its own terms and then see the way that the, those might apply to your life. Yeah. And I also think there's something to be said about the fact that like,
0: Jack is from within the quote unquote ruling class. He is from within the nobility. So no matter what form his like dissociation from reality takes, it is always placing him in a position above the rest of the world, above the poor, above everyone else. Even when his madness is in the form of believing that he is, you know, Jesus Christ. He's that's him putting himself in a position above everyone else, and although he still treats it as him saying, "Oh, um, you know, I'm the god of love," um, he he gets you know the occasional kudos from the Bolshevik Butler. Uh, he's still putting himself in a position of authority and power over everyone else, and whenever they fix him to bring him back. In line with the more aristocratic values quote unquote, by quote unquote fixing him they he still has this position of where he is above everyone else it's just more malicious and it says something about nobility that they they do consider themselves to be gods and executors of justice
2: one of the funniest jokes in that vein is when he gets his new bride pregnant like immediately And the family kind of has to brag about it. (laughs) Yes. They think he's insane, but because he's part of a noble bloodline, they still have to be like, well, you know, the Gurneys are very virile, so I'm not surprised, you know. Strong stock that uh, he was bred from, so of course he got her pregnant immediately. Like, they can't help but um, celebrate him because everything that comes from that family has to be good to justify their, like, God-ordained ruling class status. Made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of like small laughs out of like uh, these sort of like understated character moments, which is funny because like the movie could be seen as like a Clifford level exercise in someone just being um, absolutely hateable for two and a half hours. <laughs> he is such an obnoxious inhuman performance uh, throughout, but I also find Clifford very funny. So I, I guess both flavors work for me in some way. Yeah. And I I don't want, you know, I
0: don't want to be very negative about this, this movie. It's not like I, 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 this isn't a movie that I found objectionable. It was a movie that I was like, yeah, I'm in agreement with most of what it's putting forward, but it's a little bit sleepy for me. And I guess what I was getting at before with the fact that like, okay, this is based on a stage play. The things that I did enjoy the most were jack's interactions with like the people who lived in the village the ladies who initially wanted him to come and do you know the speech at their garden party or whatever the hell it was and how they were like initially very charmed by um jack for like half a second whenever he was jesus and then utterly offended because how dare he you know blaspheme in such a way but then you know when he met up with them later as Jack the Ripper they found him very charming even though he's not putting on like a very charismatic front he's very creepy he's very scary and yet because you know he is the gentry they're just like ha ha ha, ha, ha. we're so glad you've seen the light ha ha, ha. and that yeah. that was stuff that i really enjoyed
1: it's hard for me to not watch this movie and be like you know Any other time I've watched it, it just has kind of felt like, oh, well, you know, this is very British politics specific and, you know, I'm kind of a big history nerd. So I'm just like, all right, like, I think it's funny and I get it being a very niche movie. But now I'm just like, goddamn, like, if you were to portray, like, portray the most hateful citizen in America, you would be the biggest Republican hit right now. And like you said, like, that's not necessarily funny, but I do find this, like, I don't know. I guess shrill is kind of a word that I'm like, I I don't really even know what that means in humor. But uh, I think the hate is seething, but I don't think it's to the point where they miss the humor on it.
2: When I say shrill in this context, it's that... Most of the dialogue is belligerent screaming, which is a lot to put oh, yeah, up with yeah. for two and a half hours. It's it's grating, you know? Yeah. But it's kind of incredible as just like a Bravo performance. Like Yeah. Peter O'Toole was nominated for the Best Actor Oscar this year, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, he lost it to Marlon Brando for The Godfather, the Godfather which is... Yeah. Um, the exact opposite volume of performance but yeah,
1: uh well you know <laughs> i uh
2: i would i would more likely okay but that was the same year kind of that
1: thing. brando like let the activist speak in his stead so we can't yep. hate too much on that
2: i'm not hating on it
1: uh, yeah yeah i'm just saying <laughs> we can't hate too i much. do
2: tend to um celebrate this kind of performance mm-hmm. like i know we mentioned nick cage earlier Tim yeah pod and I love his acting style. I, I think there's something about the way that like an actor completely takes over a production. Where like the first like I want to say 20 minutes of this movie, Peter O'Toole is not in the movie yet. Yeah, he's and, not uh, in When the he movie arrives, yet. then the movie starts. Like he yes. like really takes it over, and this movie would not be the same without his particular belligerent screaming. There's a there's a really yeah. particular mode he's in, and um, that's the kind of stuff that. I'm more interested in. It's like uh it it's like the actor becoming the auteur of the piece through sheer sheer force. Yeah. And so yeah, I think it's a great performance. It it is a little tiring, but uh that's kind of the point of it too.
1: Yeah. I mean, he does carry the movie like on his back for most of the time. I do like the lady who plays his aunt who eventually comes on to him. The performance just like she just has these faces during, like, every snide, like, one-liner. But I'm just like, I I love that. <laughs> I love your just snide one-liner and the face you make afterwards.
2: She was great. I liked his Brides um to the Audience monologue about how sex work is just another acting job yes! to her. And she equated, like, having sex on her wedding night with this, like, basically this John as, like... The same as working with Stanislavski, <laughs> you know. Like, the, it's a very funny monologue just about the overlap of acting and sex work. And I think she like they give her the three minutes, and she makes a meal out of it. And any of her other chime-ins are charming, but uh, it doesn't really matter. Like, um, it's kind, of, it's kind of like in a play. Like, every, you get your one big song or your one big speech, and that's your moment of the night where you have the audience in your hands, and she carries it well.
1: I don't know. I get y'all aren't as enthused, but. I liked it. I Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad at least it wasn't a chore, even if it was long.
2: I didn't say it wasn't a chore. I said I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually for these episodes, I will rewatch a movie yeah. a second time. Like, I'll sit down and watch a film with a notebook
1: mm-hmm.
2: and take notes and pay attention very, like, intently. And then, as a refresher, later on, I'll be, like, folding laundry or eating dinner. You know, I'll I'll be busy, but the movie will be playing. And um, I did not do that for this film. I think once was enough. (laughs) I got it. (laughs) And uh, I didn't really need my brain pummeled a second time by it. So, I wouldn't say it wasn't a chore, but I did enjoy the work. Yeah, I'm not sorry I saw this, just to clarify.
1: Yeah. No, no, I i'll make you sorry no um
0: (laughs) there is something about so we talk about this sometimes where comedy is very culturally specific in a way that drama can be more universal because comedy often relies upon um you understanding the differences between classes within a certain culture that's being Just mocked.
1: cultural touchstones, like...
0: Yeah. Um, thing, you know, you can't satirize something that nobody knows what you're talking about. Uh, you know, like something that might be satire, like a satire in one culture might not be in another. And so England is sort of our closest cultural cousin, right? um in the states them and and like canada i guess but so we can find uk comedy that is maybe a little broader much funnier like there is a universal appeal to holy grail i really like life of brian i love faulty towers even though it's kind of poorly and it has
1: aged extremely poorly but yeah, it will never stop being like one of like three DVD box sets that I had in my household as a child that sometimes yeah. is just kind of comfort watching.
0: Yeah, and and I, I think that we have that with England in a lot of ways because of our, you know, very specific, and I'm saying England and, you know, I, I'm, I know England and Britain are not interchangeable, but that's just, I'm, you know, that's the terminology I'm using for this specific yeah. point.
1: England, Britain, UK, it's all... A complicated mess for us people in the colonies
0: we don't even we don't even know where all of the states in our own country are. I mean,
1: it's true. If you, you know, ask me to chart out the northeast, I'm doomed
0: i geography is my worst subject too
1: like if you were to give me like a map of you know continental Europe, I'd be pretty good. The northeast united States i'm doomed
0: <laughs> yeah i and that having been said i I think that like, I'm in agreement with you that there's a lot of British comedy that I really enjoy. One of my absolute favorite shows is Garth Moringi's Dark Place, which I watch, like, at least once every God, two years. I love years. that
1: movie. That, that show. Oh, I love it so much. But yes.
0: But there is something specific and timely about this movie in particular that makes it not as universal as those. Um, insofar as, it, even though you don't really even need to know the specifics of it, I don't know. It just, it... it it doesn't hit any specific touchstones for me in a way where i'm like yes i'm actually finding this very funny in the way that you know some of the other things that we mentioned didn't do but that having been said like i said i'm not i'm not mad that i've seen this now
2: you know i mean for a musical that's a pretty good endorsement for him
0: you know it took a very long time to get to the things that i found really entertaining about it and when it did, I was entertained. But, you know, I probably won't see this again. We are the Village Green Preservation Society God save
2: Donald duck Bonneville and Variety We are the Desperate Dan Appreciation Society God save strawberry
0: jam And all the different varieties Serve in the old
2: place from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. What more can we do? We are the Draft Bear Preservation Society. Not Moss, from God save Mrs. visit and the Lord Mother Riley. We are the Custom Fire Appreciation Consortium.
0: God save the George Cross and all those who are wanted.